Greetings! We hope you can join us at the COSM Conference, November 10th through 12th in Bellevue, Washington. This year, COSM, sponsored by the Discovery Institute and the Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence, is focusing on the topic of paradoxes of the new world of technology. Speakers include luminaries like business prophet George Gilder and entrepreneur Peter Thiel. For more information about speakers and registration, visit the COSM website at cosm.technology. That's C-O-S-M dot technology. As a taste of what you can expect from COSM, let's listen to Maverick entrepreneur Peter Thiel's talk from the previous conference. Peter is hosted by Discovery Institute co-founder George Gilder. Enjoy! The ultimate cosmic man here, <laughs> Peter Thiel. Hello. Well, uh, George, uh, thank you so much for that terrific introduction. Thank you for the uh, plug for my Zero to One book. Uh, um, certainly any uh, additional royalty checks are very much appreciated. Uh, and so thank you for that plug. I am, uh, you know, in my brief uh, comments here, I'm going to offer uh, three contrarian ideas for the future where, you know, where things are going with uh, technology and computers. And I thought I would try to double um, these three ideas up as a, as a sort of uh, book review of uh, Gilder's terrific uh, book, uh, um, Life After Google. And so I'm going to give you three contrarian ideas, but I'm going to weave in a little bit of a book review of, uh, um, uh, of, the, of uh, Life After Google as well. Um, you know, one of the things that's always difficult about talking about the future is that, uh, you know, we don't, don't really know what's going to happen for sure. It's not that deterministic. Um, I think it's even hard to talk to know what happened in the past. So let, let's start by talking about the history of the computer age and the, the history of the future, the way people talked about the future in the past and the way they thought, where was the computer age going to go? And if we were, if we'd been assembled in 1969, the future of computers was going to be massive centralization. It was giant databases, uh, giant uh, AI-like computer intelligences that would run everything. Uh, it was like IBM, it was um, HAL transposed in the Space Odyssey uh, movie, um, one letter off from IBM. Uh, it was uh, one of the early Star Trek episodes, they, they come to the planet Beta, which... Uh, thousands of years earlier had been um, somebody had unified the planet and left a computer program that ran the whole planet. And all the people were sort of uh, peaceful, but very docile. Nothing ever happened. Um, and, um, and as usual, they sort of follow the prime directive and um, convince the computer to self-destruct. They don't follow the prime directive and, and then sort of leave everything in disarray. But, uh, but the future of the computer age circa 1969 was centralization, a few large companies, a few large governments, uh, a few large computers that controlled everything. Fast forward to 1999, um, the future of the computer age was going to be massive decentralization. It was sort of libertarian, anarchist. Uh, it was uh, sort of the corollary to the end of the Soviet Union was that information had this decentralizing um, tendency and that you know the internet was going to fragment things um, and it was going to be... Uh, this sort of anarchic libertarian place. And if, if uh, and then if we uh, fast forward to 2019, the consensus view of the future today, I would submit is that the pendulum has somehow swung back all the way to 1969. And the consensus view is again, that uh, it is about, you know, large centralization, um, Google, Google like governments that, uh, that sort of control, 
you know, all the world's information in this uh, super centralized uh, kind of way. And, uh, and I think the, you know, the, the life after Google thesis that, uh, that I agree with and endorse is that uh, if we look at this past and people got it terribly wrong in 69 and things were going to go to decentralization, 99, it, it, it actually started going back the other way. From the point of view of 2019, even if we, uh, even if I'm hesitant to talk about the absolute future and you know where this all ends ultimately, um, perhaps the contrarian thing is to say that maybe the pendulum can swing back and that things can swing back towards more decentralization, more privacy, uh, and and things things like that. And uh, and this is sort of uh, this is sort of what what seems to be at least contrarian and uh, at least uh, something that we should. Uh, we should uh, always take more more seriously. If you want to frame it in terms of the buzzwords of the day, in terms of crypto and AI, um, it is um, it is easily understood by people. It's always understood that crypto is somehow vaguely libertarian, but um, we never are willing to say the opposite, uh, which is that AI. If you know, if crypto is libertarian, then AI is communist, and. Um, and you know it's it's because it's centralized. It's the computer knows more about you than you know about yourself. It is uh, it is a totalitarian. Communist China loves AI and dislikes crypto. And that we ha- at least have uh, that we should at least uh, consider the possibility that uh, you know Silicon Valley is probably way too enamored of AI, not just for technological reasons, but also because it expresses this uh, this sort of left-wing centralized zeitgeist. And, 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 and so I think the, uh, the, the first sort of contrarian idea I have is that you know, perhaps it's time for the pendulum to swing back and life after Google um, you know, at its core means that we are going to go back from this very centralized uh, uh, world today towards a, a more uh, decentralized one. That seems to me to be, be the correct thing to bet on. Now, the, you know, the second um, contrarian idea that... Uh, is of course um, we can sort of talk about how fast these things are happening and how much is happening in technology generally. And you know, it's it's one of these things where we we live in a world of incredible scientific and technical precision. We can measure Avogadro's number or the fine structure constant in physics or other things like this to to many many significant figures. But when we talk about um, the nature of the progress of science and technology. Um, and how fast science or technology are progressing. Uh, we do this in the most qualitative way with, um, you know, with incredibly little precision. And, um, you know, are we, are we accelerating in scientific and technical fields? Are we, um, are we progressing, but at a slower pace? How fast is this? And, uh, and with respect to that question, we tend to only get um, these sort of, um, Fairly vague answers, and I would say, but I would submit that the sort of consensus in um, in sort of a both a Silicon Valley and a sort of academic context is that we are doing great, and everything is just moving super fast. It's sort of uh, all these forms of accelerationism, and we can debate whether it's utopian, a la Kurzweil, the singularity is near. All you need to do is sit back and eat some popcorn and watch the movie of the future unfold. Um, or perhaps it is dystopian, a la all the science fiction movies from Hollywood, and the robots are going to kill you, or you're going to be in this matrix, and we're sort of accelerating. We're sort of accelerating to utopia, or accelerating to dystopia. And uh, the you know the somewhat contrarian 
thesis I have on this is always that uh, perhaps uh, the progress is not as fast as advertised and uh, that we've been in this world where uh, things have been slower and they've been slower for quite some time. Um, you know, one one cut on this is always to differentiate the world of atoms and bits and that uh, since the 1970s, we've had a narrow cone of progress around atoms that they've been sorry, around bits. The you know computers, internet, mobile internet, software. These have been advancing fairly quickly. Uh, the world of atoms, somewhat more slowly. When you know, when I was an undergraduate at uh, at, at Stanford, um, I, I would, in the late '80s, uh, I would say that almost every engineering field, in retrospect, was a bad field to go into. It was already obvious that you shouldn't go into nuclear engineering. Aero-astro engineering weren't, weren't that good. But even all these other fields were were not going to do that well in the decades ahead because we were you know, electrical engineering was still okay. Uh, computer science was the really good field to go into in, in the late 80s. All the other engineering fields, it was just regulated to death. There wasn't that much you could do in the world of atoms. And uh, it turned out that we had, uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, slowed process, progress. And I, I think that if we sort of analyze this question of the uh, the rate of scientific progress politically and think of it as, um, as sort of um, university professors or entrepreneurs or venture capitalists, um, um, exaggerating about how much good they're doing and how great they are, we understand that the incentives are always to exaggerate and to uh, to you know, say that you know we're we're just around the corner from curing cancer, we're around the corner in you know, all these different things, and yet uh, it's been uh, it's been in some significant way slower over the last uh, last forty or fifty years. <coughs> uh, certainly, uh, one of the one of the concerns I would have is that um, um, that perhaps. Um, the, the danger is that, if anything, that it's things are slowing down even more at this point, and that um, the sort of world of very fast progress in bits is actually starting to slow down. Um, and if we look at um, at the rate of progress in uh, in Silicon Valley, um, you know, the, it was sort of charismatic in this because it was the one place where things were still happening relative to the rest of the U.S. And, uh, and it's become a lot less charismatic in the last five years. If you sort of think about the, the, the vibe in 2014, even as recently as 2014, it was sort of, um, this was the place where the future was being built. In 2019, um, you know, the big tech companies are probably as, uh, as self-hating in some ways as, uh, as the big banks were in 2009. And, um, and uh, there's sort of a sense that it's, uh, it's not quite working. And so if you sort of begin to pick on Google a little bit here, the, you know, the Google propaganda of the future was, of course, it was all going to be bits. It was all going to be sort of more automation. You know, the story in 2014 were things like Google Glasses. So you could um, identify anybody you looked at at any time. It was the self-driving car. I would say these aren't like that big in a set of innovations. Probably a self-driving car is a step from a car, but not as big as a car was from a horse. And so you can sort of debate quite how big these things are and how how to quantify them again, but uh, but th- that was still the narrative that was very intact in 2014. And uh, when you fast forward to 2019, it's striking how there's absolutely no narrative of the future left. Google doesn't even talk about the self-driving car very much. There's a sense that it may still happen, but it's further in the future. The, to- the expected time seems to be getting further away uh, every passing year. It's the expected time is getting even further into the future. And, um, and so there's sort of the sense that uh, perhaps there's this danger that we have um, slowed progress, even in tech, 
even in the world of information technology. Uh, one of the, you know, one of parenthetically, one of the ways this t- uh, stagnation thesis sort of was embedded in the language is the word technology, of course, had a very different meaning. And in the, in the 1960s, technology meant not just computers, but also rockets and supersonic aviation and underwater cities and the green revolution in agriculture and biotechnology and new medicines and all these things, because all these things were progressing on many fronts. And today, uh, if you use the word technology, it is often synonymous with um, with information technology and and probably just the uh, software internet part of that because that's the only part that has been moving um, that has been progressing in recent decades and the the danger is that even that has slowed down um, um, a lot that uh, somehow Silicon Valley is consolidated into some larger companies it's it's gotten harder for new companies to break through and it's gotten harder because new companies are small companies are good at doing new things and people are doing fewer new things than um, than the big companies are are more dominant. And so, um, so I think the second, uh, you know, uh, a cut on the uh, life after Google book in, in these terms is, um, is always what I think is the sort of, um, you know, uh, Gilder's always super optimistic, but there is like a, a small undercurrent of pessimism to the book. And the undercurrent is, you know, the specter that haunts life after Google is that maybe this current regime is going to go on for a really long time. And, you know, you know, we're, you know, there was life after television, but, uh, but life after Google may take, uh, you know, it will happen eventually, but it may take uh, a little bit longer and that we're, you know, that there is a danger that we're in this somewhat slowed, somewhat stagnant world. So, uh, so that's sort of a second um, idea that we, I think we need to always um, grapple with a lot that maybe we're in this, in this world of uh, tech stagnation. Third um, contrarian idea I will give you is sort of a qualification on my first two ideas. Um, uh, because I think, you know, the first one was it's, it's about um, pendulum's going to swing back to uh, to decentralization. Second one is, yes, it's swing back, but it's just going to be slow because everything is slowed and we're in this in this world of stagnation. But uh, a qualifier to both the um, back to decentralization and the stagnation idea is that, um, you know, at the end of the day, technology is about people. It's not about, um, you know, inanimate forces. It's not some kind of Marxist historicism about, you know, the way things are inevitably going to happen. And so the stress is always on um, on individuals, small teams that start companies, that start new projects, that, that do new things. And, um, and um, it's a question of human agency. It's not deterministic. We have every possibility to do these things, but at the end of the day, it is up to us to make it happen. And it's uh, it's not set in stone that it's going to happen one way or another. And so, uh, you know, in conclusion, I think you know, sort of one other one other gloss on life after Google is that perhaps you should think of the title uh, as you know, with life being italicized or stressed or put in bold, and that uh, you know, the, the critical thing is you know, there is life. Life goes on. And uh, in particular, human life, uh, humanity goes on, and uh, and that uh, that uh, even though the dominant narrative is the tech is about inanimate forces or Marxist historicism, um, it really is at its core about human beings, and we should uh, we should always um, we you know if we have to bet on it, we should always bet on the indomitability of the human spirit. Um, maybe leave it at that and open it to some questions and more of a conversation. Thank you. Well, I'll ask the first question, Peter. Um, today, the 
U.S. government has a kind of full court press against all these uh, giant uh, technology companies. Uh, they're claimed to be monopolies. Uh, Peter, you're the world's leading expert on monopolies, how they form, what they contribute, of what their life cycle is. What do you think of this, uh, uh, all these huge fines for uh, relatively trivial offenses the, and the array of litigation against uh, Facebook and Google and all these uh, giant companies, these colossi that uh, rule our world? Well, I have to be, uh, you know, I, I always think you have to, one has to disclose one's biases when one speaks. And uh, one of my biases and one of the things that makes, uh, that gives, I mean, it makes me somewhat uh, careful in answering your questions, I'm on the board of Facebook. And so I have to be pretty <laughs> careful how I answer your question here. Um, but let me, uh, let me ask, let me sort of give a somewhat indirect answer. You know, there's, um, you know, we, there are obviously the big tech companies are facing, you know, antitrust. There's sort of a lot of regulatory stuff. Europe is pushing a lot of uh, tax related things. There are um, their privacy um, data ownership issues. So there's sort of, um, you know, and then, of course, um, uh, there's sort of a lot of different levels on which they are under um, sort of cultural and, um, and political attack. And the you know, the, the way I understand what is what is, you know, we sort of debate the merits what, what parts of these criticisms are, are, are justified, what parts are, are not justified. Uh, I think the, um, the, the way I, I think of, of the context of why this is happening is, um, you know, it's always, it's always a story where it's like, you know, Silicon Valley did all these bad things. And I don't think that's the main story. I think the main problem Silicon Valley has is that it's not done enough good things. And, you know, the story that, uh, uh, again, picking on Google, that Google would, should be able to tell is, yeah, maybe uh, there are all these things we're doing that are problematic in certain ways, but we've made the world a better place in all these other very important, very tangible ways. And um, that story has gotten harder and harder to tell. And I think um, I think that remains sort of the, uh, the you know the core um, the core challenge of of Silicon Valley. Um, you know, on the on the specific uh, you know merits of these questions, the uh, the way I believe uh, Silicon Valley should defend itself. Like, and again, I think, you know, there's a lot, some of these criticisms are justified and Silicon Valley needs to do a better job in, in, in many ways. But uh, I, I believe that the core defense Silicon Valley should give um, against the accusations of being too big and too centralized in, in all these problematic ways is that um, the alternative to Silicon Valley, the practical alternative at this point is perhaps not... Um, of the crypto anarchist decentralization, uh, but the uh, the most likely alternative is even more centralization in the form of um, Chinese communist tech companies, where um, um, you know the inf where it's basically um, just one giant Borg like thing that's controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. And so, if there is a problem with big tech, if it's you know too homogenized, too centralized, and so on, um, we have to be careful that uh, we don't set up an alternative where it's even bigger and even more centralized and, um, and literally communist. Uh, we've got uh, some questions here, thank you. I very much respect and appreciate your views on education. 
95 Theses Founders Fund and Beyond. I guess that's 1517 that uh, uh, we do together and I describe in Life After Google. How do you envisage the ideal improved education system to produce young people who will bring progress rather than more cogs for the existing, existing machine? Yeah, let me say something about the, uh, the uh, 95 theses and the, um, uh, the uh, 1517 reference. Uh, we, uh, we sort of uh, had this idea that, um, and uh, this was two years ago in 2017, but uh, still uh, you know, very, very much uh, correct. That, you know, the way to think of the universities today is that they are as, um, as corrupt as the uh, Roman Catholic Church was um, 500 years ago. And they are basically, uh, it is, you have sort of this uh, the system of indulgences that uh, takes the form of, you know, runaway tuitions. You have this priestly or professorial class that uh, is pretty lazy and doesn't do very much work. You have um, you have this uh, theory of salvation where salvation consists of getting a diploma, and if you do not get a college diploma, you are going to end up in a very bad place. And so there's even sort of a soteriological story as well. And um, and I think that uh, it's 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 sort of a universalized, centralized big story. It's, um, it's a successor to the universal Catholic church is this universal university system. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, maybe this is an oxymoronic way to describe it, but I think you have to think of it as the atheist church with a capital A and a capital C. Um, and, um, and that, uh, you know, one of the things that I think, um, I have, uh, no problems with the church and I have, um, you know, some problems with atheism, but uh, I think the atheist church is really simply too much, and we should be fighting the atheist church in um, in 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 all of its forms. And uh, and uh, and I think the uh, you know, and I think the uh, the fifteen seventeen analogy again. I can't quite you know predict the future, but is that reform does not come from within? You know, there's sort of where all these attempts you do to reform these universities from within, and it is just feels like a. A, a fool's errand of sorts. Uh, you know, I remember in 2007, um, over a decade ago, I had this idea that my big nonprofit philanthropy project was going to be to start a new university. And I had someone at my, my foundation spent a year and a half looking at all the universities that had been started in the U.S. in the preceding hundred years, with 1907 to 2007. And it was a sorry tale of donor intent betrayed and money wasted and things just not working at all. And there were a few tiny things that you could say sort of worked, but on the whole, it was just a, uh, a sorry, sorry tale of, 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 of failure. And, um, and you know, the, the, the lesson I, I took from it was one of, uh, you know, a little bit of humility because, you know, one reaction is, well, people have failed at this for a hundred years and I'm going to do it better. And, um, and the lesson I took instead was, you know, uh, maybe um, the system is actually unbelievably hard to reform on the inside um, and like in 1517, the Reformation starts from the outside. Um, it uh, and the um, and the alternative is not to create some new university system, some some new template. It's for people to do different things. And you know the way the way we started was with this uh, Teal Fellows program. We try to convince you know 20 uh, students a year to stop out of college and start companies. So it was not a it was not a plan, but it was um, going off the. Uh, the sort of ever narrower tracks that are working ever less well. And, uh, and some generalization of that is, is what I think uh, we, we all sense that we need. And, um, you know, a lot of it, um, you know, the, the, the sort of 
one framework that I had for our, our program that might be you know a good framework for you know the post university thing is you know it was always a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff that one can still do in computers and so we always thought you know a lot of it was about programming and then um, and then then to the extent we wanted a program for what we were doing we thought what we needed to do was deprogramming and so the sort of the label I thought for the internal label we had for the Teal Fellowship was it was about programming and deprogramming and we need to deprogram people from the cult of the atheist church. What about online education? What, what is the promise of that? There are a lot of uh, really significant initiatives uh, which uh, are actually having an impact. What do you think of the, are the prospects really in, in using information technology to provide high entropy education? Well, well there's obviously a lot that one can do um, Online and in you know in all of these these um, these forms when I um, when I take my venture capitalist hat and look at these things as um, as things to invest in um, I always uh, think it's very important to sort of um, um, break down a little bit the abstractions and and uh, to remember that education itself is always an abstraction and if we um, make it a little bit less abstract. Um, let me suggest uh, there are four different things that education means in practice in our uh, in our society. Um, um, one um, one thing is um, is certainly um, you know the, the the official meaning is that it's all about learning. It's about information. It's a positive sum game. It's it's about learning. But uh, sort of a, four 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 sort of variations of it is it's an investment in your future. So you go to college. It's sort of an investment into a better future. Um, second, it's a consumption decision. So it's like a four-year party. Um, and, uh, and I used to think that it was sort of this bad superpositions, bad quantum superposition of, um, investment and, uh, consumption. It was sort of like people in the housing bubble bought a large house with a swimming pool and it showed how frugal they were and how much they were saving for retirement. And it was, uh, we were sort of conflating investment and consumption, which is always a mistake. But I now think um, that it's the, uh, the third and fourth one that are the more important. The third one is that it's an insurance product and that it's something you buy to um, avoid falling through the ever bigger cracks in our society. And you can pay and they can charge more and more for you because people are getting more scared about some of the things that have gone wrong in this country. And the fourth one is it's a zero sum tournament where um, you have to think of Harvard and Stanford and Caltech and the other elite universities as a sort of Studio 54 nightclub yeah. in which um, the value is not that you have this information and that uh, it's actually the value comes from um, from exclusion, from excluding people. And um, and so, you know, there's like a Harvard or a Stanford version of putting Harvard or Stanford classes online and letting people take them. And these universities have done it and people can, can take those classes um, in many cases, but they don't get credit at Harvard or Stanford and taking those classes does not lead to a Harvard or Stanford degree. And um, that, uh, that tells you that um, a lot of the value of this very strange good that is called education um, comes not from the actual learning, but more from things like um, status, selection, exclusion, um, think things of that sort, and um, and I think that uh, when we look at these different approaches, we have to we have to try to disentangle what they're doing. So online education is great for learning, um, but unfortunately, learning has almost nothing to do with um, 
the so-called educational system. Peter, uh, Hayek said that the root and source of all monetary evil is the government monopoly of money. You started PayPal in, in part to uh, overthrow this government monopoly of money. Uh, how's it going? <laughs> it's, um, and what can we was, hope for in the future in the cryptocosm? Um, it's a little bit. Um, it's a little bit harder than I thought in 1999. Certainly, um, it. Uh, I was uh, very. Um, you know, one of the one of the books that tremendously influenced me when I started PayPal was uh, um, the Sovereign Individual. It was written by uh, Rees Mogg, the father of um, Jacob Rees Mogg, the um, the British uh, Brexit parliamentarian. And uh, it was about how we we're going to have cryptocurrencies and it was going to be this cent- decentralized world where sovereignty would itself would get decentralized to the individual level. And I, I read that book in the summer of 98 and it, it sort of inspired me to, to start uh, PayPal as this, you know, sort of uh, libertarian um, project that was going to uh, liberate people's money from um, the control of the central monetary authorities. And there was sort of a whole set of ideas we had around that. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, um, in, in the context of PayPal, we certainly built a successful business, but, uh, but that part of the vision turned out to be quite hard to do. And, um, there was certainly forms of electronic money that, uh, in theory were decentralizing and in practice enabled more centralization and more control. And especially after 9-11 and the Patriot Act and, um, all the ways that, uh, the, the regulatory state was able to um, more precisely track the, the flow of electronic money that, uh, you know, it, um, it, it, it may have actually uh, um, trended quite the other way. Um, now, I think of, uh, I, I do think of Bitcoin as um, the, the real thing. It is, um, it's sort of the centralized currency that we, we fantasized about at PayPal, but, but didn't quite build. Um, you know, I, I have um, speculative thoughts on who Satoshi is and, you know, um, and the Bitcoin origin story. And without uh, without stating precisely who, let me uh, who I think it is. Let me uh, let me uh, give what I think is the key origin story for uh, for Bitcoin. Um, we were at this uh, when I when I started PayPal. We were at this uh, financial cryptography. Con- I went to this financial cryptography conference in Anguilla in um, early 2000, sort of an annual conference, and it, they have sort of this gathering of people who are libertarian and into cryptocurrencies and uh, probably a decent number of um, people working at the NSA and uh, spying for the U.S. government and other governments as well. So it's sort of this uh, rather interesting gathering of people. And, uh, you know, my my theory is that Satoshi was at that conference or at one like that in um, in in early uh, in early 2000. Um, and, that you know, these ideas were germinated in in in, in the late 90s already. And one of the manifestations of cryptocurrency at that uh, particular conference was uh, was a system called eGold, and it was uh, um, anonymous encrypted electronic gold certificates. And it was, it was a company. It was based in southern Florida. They had these servers distributed all over the planet. But it was, in theory, this um, gold-based alternative to the dollar. Um, it was going to be encrypted and um, and safe. And there were all these problems with eGold. We made it interoperable with PayPal. Turned out there was sort of a lot of criminal fraud, criminal activity. Maybe that's always part of the territory of these things. We sort of disconnected it. But um, it, the, the people who started it eventually got in a lot of trouble. 
Um, you know, the whole system was shut down. Uh, they were the company was targeted. They were um, they were uh, prosecuted. I don't think they went to jail, but the whole the whole thing was sort of disbanded. And there was something about the e-gold architecture that was in theory a cryptocurrency and in theory um, fairly decentralized with their servers in Iceland and Dubai and you know one or two other places. But in practice, it was still centrally attackable by the larger central government. And I, I believe the the true Bitcoin origin story was in contrast to e-gold. Um, you know, it's almost the same name in a way. It's like e-gold, Bitcoin. You know, it's, it has roughly the same. Uh, the same. It's, it's like you were thinking about e-gold. Okay, I'm going to do the next e-gold. I'm going to change e to bit and coin to gold. And uh, uh, it was sort of a, a contrast to that. And so I think the reason we do not know who Satoshi is is integral to the history of Bitcoin. If we knew who it was, um, you know, our um, too powerful central government would probably do some very unpleasant things to that person. Peter, uh, why do you believe that uh, the Communist Party of China could uh, nurture or run giant companies with uh, tremendous capabilities that actually are competitive with the best com companies in the United States? How is it possible that a Communist Party can actually be a threat uh, in this commercial creative domain. Well, I, I, suppo I suppose um, you know I I think um, these companies are a threat, and I think they are very tightly controlled by the Communist Party. So uh, so the, the the counterpoint to it is is um, you know um, that's that seems to me to be the the empirical um, reality. I think um, I think the theoretical so that's the empirical answer. The, the theoretical answer to your question is uh, I don't yeah, I don't think centralized totalitarian communism is that good at creativity. You know I mean you did have good number theorists and good chess players in the Soviet Union, so there probably is are certain forms of creativity you're able to have even in a Stalinist or Maoist system. Um, but um, but I don't think you know I don't think the creativity is essential and the 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 competitive threat from from these companies in China is that they are just extremely fast at copying. They're, they're very fast at copying things that work. And there's always, you know, in, in any sort of creative business, there is, um, there's a balance between, um, the creative inspiration, what I call, you know, the, the, um, you know, the zero to one, the, the miraculous beginning yeah. and, um, and, um, and then scaling the business and building it. And, um, you know, I think, I think in every area, of technology and innovation, the United States and the West more generally are still at the cutting edge. We're still ahead. We're, we're the only place in the world where innovation is really happening. But how much value it is to us depends on how quickly it gets uh, transferred and exfiltrated to China. And so, um, you know, the West developed the atom bomb in 1945. And that was, you know, again, it was, uh, it was a form of, of innovation. It was that, that was possible in a free society. But, uh, you know, within four years, you know, once you had proven that it could be done, it, it could be copied even in the Stalinist Soviet Union. So copying is much easier to do than originating. And, um, and if you have no IP protection, if you, uh, if, um, if we have this, this sort of massive, um, exfiltration of, uh, of information and ideas, um, then, um, the disadvantage is not that great for China, and they 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 can be quite a big threat. 
How does your understanding of technology inform you about the current pulse of personal relationships and the broader social and societal fabric looks like now and into the future? You can talk forever, Peter. Any, <laughs> any room for the human spirit in our futures? Well, there one one <laughs> one one would one uh, would hope so. I look. I think there are all sorts of uh, unhealthy trends in our society uh, and things that are you know that are that are very off. And um, and certainly, you know, I think I think the, the way I understand the Jordan Peterson phenomenon is uh, that it's not that he's correct about Jungian psychology, which I think is just ridiculous. But um, but what's what's Peterson's been effective because Jungian psychology is a politically correct way to talk about the extremely dysfunctional gender relationships in um, in um, the United States and the West. And so, yeah, so I think I, I agree with that premise of the question that there are some um, some some really big problems. I I would um, you know, I, I would disagree with the claim that it's mainly driven by technology. I mean, maybe there are aspects of, um, of, um, of tech of the sort of, sort of constant attention distraction or things like that, that are unhealthy and that are socially unhealthy. But I, uh, I, I think the, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's actually driven by it's over. These things are overdetermined. There are many things that drive it. And, um, and, you know, my, my intuition for what's gone wrong in, in a lot of these cultural areas is just the sort of general sense of cultural malaise of stagnation of of um you know the future is um is not getting better our society is not pro progressing and so um when people um retreat into playing video games or um living in their parents basements or um you know staying in graduate school um, <laughs> um it's it's uh it's it's probably um it's probably uh uh, maybe, maybe this is just like a, you know, um, you know. I think I think the solution is yeah. You, maybe you should give them a, um, a Jordan Peterson like psychology lesson. Maybe you can tell them to turn off their iPhones or take away their iPhones. But uh, but I think uh, I think the, the 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 real structural thing is we have to get back to the future. We have to get back to growth in our economy generally. Thank that, you. And that's, I, that's at least always my my bias. Yeah, that's a wonderful, challenging opening to the conference, Peter. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.